1: The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to this interseason edition of the Terrifying Lies Podcast. While I take a break to compose a new batch of stories for season three, which, by the way, I can't wait to share with you, I have no intention of leaving you out in the cold. That is why I offer these interseason editions to tide you over until we can resume our nightmare, you and I. Today I plan to present to you a couple more tales from the archives of the Freestyle Gargoyles. If you're new to this experiment, here is the concept. I belong to a band called Rust Monster. We've released several albums, including two pirate-themed albums entitled The Last Voyage of the Black Betty and The Flight of the Filthy Vicar. Our other works include Clockman, a steampunk rock opera, Neo-Retro, and Space Funk, a sci-fi funk opera. You can stream our music anywhere. Many years ago, a stranger sent me an unsolicited but tantalizing message. It read, Would you consider playing bass guitar as a special guest on our 36th album? Well, I couldn't believe this band could be so prolific. I responded with interest in the stranger's project. The stranger turned out to be Sean Hunt and his band, Fapel. Sean gave me a time and a place to show up for his mystery project. When I arrived, he said, Hello, Craig, why don't you sit right there for makeup? Makeup, I asked, a bit stymied. Sean then said matter-of-factly, Yes, tonight's theme is Day of the Dead. Well, I sat down. Next thing I knew, a woman had painted a remarkable Day of the Dead skull on my face. When Sean said it was time to go, I picked up my bass and followed him, along with a few other musicians, into a room outfitted with disco lights and a bit of hanging fog in the air. Sean set a wall-mounted timer to 40 minutes. He sat behind the drums and counted us off into oblivion. For the next 40 minutes, we played, not knowing what was going to happen next. My experience with Fazba Fapel corresponded to a later rehearsal with my band that very night, Rust Monster. When I walked into our studio, I told the guys what had happened with Fazba Fapel and their 36th album. I pitched Doing It Again right there that very night with Rust Monster. The guys said yes. I set a timer to 40 minutes, counted off the band, and the freestyle gargoyles were born. Sean Hunt is a remarkable person. Extremely creative and articulate. He put together a little 20 minute documentary about his band, Fasbah Fapel, and their goal of producing 100 albums in one year, which, I have to add, they accomplished in spades. Look for a link to his documentary in the description of this episode of Terrifying Lies. I have to give props to the Fasbah Fapel guys. They helped me and my friends to start something that we love. And the experiment continues. Later, we, the Freestyle Gargoyles, thought it would be fun to bring in a few authors to read their work while we improvised a soundtrack. We added a conductor to keep us somewhat on track. Magic happened. For today's interest season edition of Terrifying Lies, I give you two authors. First, James Wymore with his second appearance as a Freestyle Gargoyle. Secondly, I give you Nathan Shoemate, another great author. Welcome to the realm of the Freestyle Gargoyles. Introducing the Freestyle Gargoyles, featuring James Wymore.
0: Crunch, thump, wadu. Crunch, thump, wadu. Crunch, the shovel cuts into the damp earth. Thump, my boot stomping on the rim of the spade drives it deeper into the soil. Wadu, the chunk of ground lifted free slides off the end as I toss it up over the side, crunch, thumb, wadoo. I focus on the rhythm so I won't think. I can't stand to admit what I've become. A patter of rain begins to peck at my coat. I look up just as a drop goes right into the side of my eye. How did I come to this? I remember the first time I saw a grave digger sitting next to my father as we drove past a cemetery one autumn night. A man stood waist deep in a rectangular hole. Yellow and red leaves covered the browning grass between stone monuments around him. Chopping into the ground he stood upon, he loosened the soil out with a steady beat. What's he doing, I asked wide-eyed, digging up a body, looking for treasure, My brother told me people are sometimes buried with rings and other valuables. No, my father scowled. That's no grave robber. He's just a poor man doing what needs to do to make enough money to get by. So, somebody died? I turned to my mother. Yes, Widow Thorne from a few streets over. She was Celia's grandmother. I remembered my friend had been absent from school. I wondered what it would be like to see a dead body. Did she go to heaven or hell? No way to know, my father said, but she was a good sort, so we've no reason to believe she'd go anywhere bad. My brother told me sometimes the dead don't stay dead. Those were always the bad ones though. So she won't get up again? No, dad said it too fast, like it was a sore spot. And nobody will have to dig her back up? My questions upset my parents but I felt it was important. Heavens no, my mother said. Digging up those resting in peace, that's a terrible sin. Only ghouls do that. And ghouls always come back after. It's not true, my father interrupted. None of it, just superstitions and wives' tales. That's the end of it. Crunch. Thumb. do? I can still picture his face well his face as it used to be, as I slice into the ground above his brother's coffin. I hate the unnatural forces of this earth because my dad taught me to. The irony of it all settles hard in my stomach. Everything about this feels wrong. The dirt flying out of this hole is like the lessons of my life being tossed to the wind. Sensibilities I cherish being broken into sand and rubble then cast away. What choice do I have? I see the face of my own son, so young and frail, as he coughs up blood. Should have gotten better by now, the doctor says. There's no medical explanation. No medical explanation. If it's all just superstitions and wise tales, why is there no medical explanation? Another fall day, walking home from school, my brother Jeremy took us on a detour. A kid in my class said somebody dug up a grave. No way, I tried to look like I didn't care. I'd show him I wasn't scared of anything. It's probably just diggers getting ready for a funeral. Nope, not this one. Somebody in the middle of the night dug up a fresh grave. Why would anybody do that? I remembered what my mother said. That makes them a ghoul. And ghouls always come back. (laughs) Don't know, Jeremy turned the corner and jogged ahead. Whoa, look, it's true. I followed, wanting to tell him to shush. Didn't seem right somehow to yell aloud about such things. As I caught up, I saw he told the truth. The tipped headstone lay in pieces. The hole was not a neat square trench like I'd seen the grave digger make. This crater looked like the earth itself had popped a boil and sent pus in every direction. They'd prop the coffin up and the door wouldn't shut. Let's look inside, Jeremy whispered. He crossed to the fence, the high picket fence. No, I said holding him back, it's wrong. Why? It's not like we did it. And don't you want to see what the body looks like? I didn't. I wanted nothing less than to look inside that broken box. Still, my legs followed him. We'd been upwind before. The stench reached us when we got near, and it made me gag. The pine box painted pink with little decorations around the corners and edges had been cracked at the lock and pried open so it couldn't close properly. Jeremy pinched his nose and covered his mouth with one hand. The other reached out to the smooth lid. I could see something dark inside it. A stick, just a normal wooden stick poking up at a strange angle as if a tree were growing out of the decaying body. Hey, you kids, get out of here. Before I call the cops and have you arrested for trespassing. The man's voice left no room for doubt. Jeremy turned to look. I didn't bother. We both sprinted, hurtling the fence and laying tracks on the grass as we ran for our lives. Jeremy never admitted it, but I think he was relieved as me not to have to see what was lurking inside that box crunch, thump, what do? Now contemplating my awful task, I wish we'd looked. I don't want the first one to see to be my uncle's mangled corpse. Shaking my head, I keep digging. I keep the rhythm up since sanity won't permit me to do this thing I hate if I think about it too much. I am near the end. I know there cannot be much distance between my tool and his bed. Even knowing it's madness, I can't turn back. My wife would never forgive me, and I would never forgive myself. What man could place his own life above his son's? I do what must be done, never mind the dark consequences. I'll never forget my wife's face as her tears fall freely on our sick child. My brother watched next to me as she cried. He put one hand on my shoulder. This is Uncle Merle's fault. Don't be stupid, I protested. He wasn't well at the end, Jeremy said. I knew it. Jeremy had borne the brunt of our elderly uncle's care as he descended into dementia. Jeremy was single after all, and I had a family to look after. Our own parents died years ago. How could this be his fault? Jeremy held up a wooden stake. He didn't say anything. He'd said it all before. I knew what he believed. Still, I couldn't forget father's protest against mother's words the first time I'd seen a grave digger. Father didn't believe all that stuff. That's just denial, isn't it, Jeremy? Jeremy handed me the sharp stick. He hoped it wasn't true. Wouldn't you hope it wasn't true about me? This is insane. There's no such thing as vampires. I said it, hoping that by speaking the word aloud, it would dispel the dark idea. But my resolve was weakening. You weren't there at the end. You didn't hear the things Uncle, he said. It was more than just forgetting his family or random memories. He told me he was cursed. And if we didn't do something about it, he'd destroy us all. Your son is just the first. My wife looked at me with stern eyes. She didn't care if it was true or not. She would grasp at any straw to save our son. And if I do this, I said, knowing the task would fall to me because of Jeremy's bad back, someone will just have to do the same thing to me when I die. I might be condemning my son to the same fate. At least he'll be alive to do it, Jeremy said. Crunch. What do? So I dig. So I become the thing I hate. I wonder if my uncle did this to his father. I wonder if my mother was right and all ghouls rise again. Crack. The shovel hits the top of the coffin. This is the last moment. I could still turn back now. So far, I'm only digging in the dirt. I haven't actually dug up a body yet. I'm still not a ghoul. I see my son's face. I feel my wife's deep breaths. I hear my brother's words echo in my head. I clear the dirt, but I'm not going to prop the box up like the one we saw so long ago. I just chop through the lid with the shovel. Crack. The familiar smell, so much stronger this time, brings up vial. I have to turn to the side and puke. I direct my small light revealing the twisted and black form of a man, half liquefied, just skin stretched over a contorted skeleton, holding my breath, I jam the wooden tip between two ribs on his left side, I stomp on it to make sure it's set, thump, and then I pull down dirt from the nearby mound to make sure it stays fast, wadu.
1: This has been The Freestyle Gargoyles, featuring James Wymore. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well...
2: Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y Y.com.
0: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. Introducing the Freestyle Gargoyles featuring Nate Shoemate.
2: sometimes you misremembered what day it was even forgot sunday once in a while if i was busy with planting or harvest but maeve never let me forget bookmobile day the fourth tuesday of every month she was always at my front door by nine o'clock or thereabouts rain or shine with her little plastic bag of two or three books she had read. She always said thank you so much when I opened the door because I was her ride. Her husband, Mike, had the truck out by 6 a.m., wasn't about to stay home late just so as his wife could get her silly novels switched out. Me though, I was old enough that I didn't start work near so early anymore. And anyway, I knew Maeve since she was a little girl, like enough to be in my own daughter. So it wasn't no trouble driving her down off the mountain to Ben's Cross, where the bookmobile stopped once a month. She learned a long time ago that I wasn't interested in what she'd read since last bookmobile day, especially with the kind of books she chose. But there was always stuff to talk about on the way anyways, about her kids, or her sister's kids, or the weather, or the crops. I always saw what she read anyway, oh, because in my old pickup she'd take the books out of her plastic bag and look over their fronts and backs like she was taking the last look at one of her kids before he went off to the factory in town or something. Most of the books had people like I'd never seen in real life on the cover, men with long hair and no shirt and women with their bosoms pushed up to their chins. Half the time, they were Scotsmen, the men, and all they were wearing was a kilt. Most of the people up here on the mountain are Scotch or Irish. In fact, most are Scotch and Irish after being in America this long and marrying each other. But i never seen a man like that in the flesh, all muscle and no fat. Most of us up here are carrying something up front over our belts, except some old really skinny folk like Cal Coogan's. But he's an old, old farmer who smokes like he can't breathe except through his pipe. I seen him without his shirt once when I went by his place and it was laundry day. And he may be skinny, but he ain't got muscles like in the books. Just bones under his skin and weird hairs on the outside. And the women on those books, they don't look decent to me. They're all slender like 14-year-olds, ain't yet had a baby or started putting on hips, but they're making eyes at those men like they're all grown up. We may be living out yonder up on the mountain, but we ain't like those hillbillies that marry their cousins at 12 years old. We're good Christian folk on the mountain, at least when we remember it's Sunday. But I ain't never said anything to Maeve, because them books is what keeps her happy. What with that big bear of a husband and her three kids. So if Scotsmen that don't look like no real men, women that don't look like grown-up women is what keeps her happy, then go for it, says I. And those ain't the only books she gets. Sometimes she gets a western, all hats and horses on the cover, and once or twice she's even got picture books. Although she hasn't brought one home for a while, so I don't expect it went over real well with her kids or her mic. But this time we were chatting and the sun was shining for spring and she's all happy to get to Ben's cross and the bookmobile's waiting for her. I mean, not just for her, there's three or four other people come every month. Some even bring their kids, but still she gets desperate worried when she gets down to the cross and the bookmobile ain't there yet. If Ben's Cross ain't a town, it's just crossroads. One of them's even paved. And it's called that because Ben Chambers, who was old when I was young, he set up a little grocery store there and now his grandson's run it. The bookmobile parks in the dirt patch outside Ben's out of the way of the one gas pump. And Maeve runs on in like she's a little girl again. I just take care of some business in Ben's and go back out to my truck to eat an apple and wait. Maeve's usually in there 15 or 20 minutes, which isn't enough time for a good nap, but I can just sit with my thoughts. If I weren't my own best company, I wouldn't have lived alone for the last 40 years. So this time, when Maeve steps off the bookmobile, she's not as bouncy as she usually is. I don't mean something's wrong, but it's not as right as usual. She gets in and I start back up the mountain, listening to my transmission complain. Maeve just looks at her books like she's puzzled or something. Everything okay in the bookmobile, I say? She says, yeah, they didn't have any more Lewis Lamer books this time, so I got some other stuff. And it was a different lady this time. She said the normal lady's been sick a couple weeks. The normal one knows what I like, but this lady... Maeve holds up a book. I know the road well enough to look over at it while I'm driving. First thing I see is it's a hardcover, not like the paperback she always gets. And it's about half again as big as the paperbacks. The cover ain't got no art. It's dark green fabric and the corners are banged up like it's been around a while. I said, she wouldn't let you get what you like? Oh no, I got some of those too, she said, and she holds up the normal things she reads all shortless men and shameless women. But she said, when I said there weren't no more Lewis Lamer books, she said I ought to try out something different so as I don't run out of the stuff I already know I like. I guess that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I nodded and said, if you don't like a book for book, it don't cost you nothing to stop reading it. She says, exactly. The lady says that reading puts new stuff in your head. I never thought of it that way, but sounds true enough, right? I mean, unless I read about it, I ain't never gonna see stuff like this on the mountain. She holds up her paperbacks. I say, Did I ever tell you I saw old Cal Cookins without a shirt just like that? Oh hush it, Joe, she laughs, you're gonna make me throw up all over your windshield. I didn't see Maeve for a couple of weeks, but that ain't unusual. We're pretty close to neighbors, about three-quarters of a mile, but I don't have much call to go that direction on our road. And if Maeve has call to come to mine, she sure don't need to stop and say hi every time she goes by. But Anyways, it's a couple weeks later in the evening after I've stopped work, and I'm out by the pump, filling up a bucket to take in for the wash, and Maeve's middle child comes up. I cannot remember whether his name is Jerry or Jamie, I never have, but I know who he is anyway. He says, Mr. McDonnell, can you come up to my house and see my mom? I think she's sick. I say, where's your papa at? He says, he's still working at the fields across the valley and he don't get back till late but mama, she's acting like she's off or something. And I thought at first Jerry or Jamie was out of breath and trembling from running my place but now I can tell he's a little bit scared. This is his mother after all. I say, is the other kids with her? And he says, yes sir, Rebecca sent me down to fetch you while she watches mama. So I set aside the bucket and say, Go ahead and get in my truck, we'll take the easy way up. So off we go in my truck, and it's getting pretty dark by the time I get to their house. Parts of their house is old, parts isn't so much. It used to be a one roomer long before they got it, and it's just been added to lean two on top of lean two. I go in with him and there's Rebecca standing by the door all coltish and almost as tall as me but no flesh on her yet. And the baby girl's kinda standing behind her skirts and Rebecca says, thanks for coming Mr. McDonnell and sorry for the trouble, and I say, well, where's your mama? Because I figure she'll be lying down sick somewheres but as soon as I say it I see Maeve coming out of the kitchen just walking slow but not hurt or nothing just humming to herself. I'm confused. And I just look at her because she don't look sick at first glance, and I figure I'll ask her what's going on. She doesn't even see me. She acts like just wanders around the house humming like some weird bird-like tune. I say, Maeve, everything okay? And she still doesn't say anything, just goes right on by like she's wandering through a stranger's house. I look at the kids, and Rebecca's trying to act brave, but it ain't working. I say, she been like this long? And Rebecca nods and says, she was making supper, and then she dropped the knife and just started roaming like that. I say, she answered you when you talk to her? And she and the boy just look at each other, and she says, no. And he says, it's not like words. I ask them what they mean, but they just shrug, like they don't know any other way to say it. So I follow Maeve. Where she walks into her bedroom, I walk all slow and gentle so as not to startle her, just like they say you shouldn't startle someone in sleepwalking. And I say, Maeve, is Joe. Want to tell me what's going on? Still, she don't answer, just hums that bird song, all highs and lows and no real tune. So I say louder, Maeve, and I put a hand on her shoulder. She turns around then and looks at me, and her eyes are like like they're not hers. And she says something, but it don't sound like any kind of English. It don't sound like any kind of speaking. It just sounds like they're coming from somewhere deep inside her. Then she tries to walk past me and I say, stop it Maeve, you're scaring the kids. And I hold her back with my hand on her shoulder. And suddenly she bears her teeth at me and her eyes look like cat's eyes. And then she slumps to the ground. And I'm too old and slow to catch her, so her chest and head bounce off the wood floor, but she's like she's out. So I tell the kids to come help me and together we lift her onto her bed while the youngest just stands in the corner and sniffles. and I'm starting to worry that something's gone wrong with her like a heart attack or a stroke. I hear that can even hit younger folks. But then she shakes her head slow and blinks and says, Joe, what are you doing here? Why does my head hurt? Well, the two older kids start crying. So I push them away to where the younger one is standing while I tell her what happened. She's puzzled because she says she didn't feel sick today at all, not even a headache. But she seems fine now, except for a bruise on the forehead, so she gets off the bed and says, kids, we better get her in on dinner. Joe, won't you stay and eat? I figure I might as well, just to make sure everything's okay, so I stand out of the way while the kids help her get everything together and the table set. Right on the corner of the table is that book from the bookmobile, the hardcover. She's using her bookmobile card for a bookmark, so I can see she's into it some. I say, so is this book any good after all? And she laughs from the kitchen, says, it's sure different, but it's a good different. And the lady was right, it sure does put stuff in my head. I say, what kind of stuff? And She laughs again and says, you want to know what's in a book, Joe? The best way is to read it. I can loan it to you when I'm done. But I say, I ain't read a book probably 10 years, don't want to start now. I eat with them all, watch kids laugh and tease and forget what brought me there. Even Maeve acts like she's forgot, but I don't forget. And Though I laugh with them all and eat hearty, I watch. When I leave, it's full dark and Mike isn't back yet, but probably will be soon. Maeve's got a plate waiting in the oven to stay warm and I wave goodbye and go out to my truck. It can't be three days later that someone wakes me up pounding on my door. I don't wake up easy, but whoever's pounding ain't going away. So I yell something, pull on my trousers, and I don't grab my rifle, but I make sure I know where it is. Mike's standing there, chafed at how long it took me to open up. I say, "Ain't you usually gone working by this time," and he says, "Gotta talk to you, Joe. It's about me." So I invite him in. I ain't got coffee or anything ready, of course, and I ain't rushing my business in my morning just because I got a visitor. Mike and me. We don't get along too well. Never been an open quarrel or anything like that, but he's a big stern bear of a man, hair all over his body, and a beard that starts near to his eyebrows, and he's got a sense of humor like a brown bear somebody woke up too early in the spring. I never seen why he went after Maeve, and I've never seen why she said yes to him. Like I said, she's near enough to a daughter to me, so even after all these years, I keep watching him to make sure he's keeping her happy. Like I said, I got no coffee or anything to offer him, so I kick out a chair and sit down on my own. Go ahead, I'm listening, I say. He says, you were up to my place this week. I said, one of your kids came and got me because Maeve seemed sick, but she got better after I got there. He said, sick how? And I say, he's not suspicious or angry, he's worried. So I tell him how Maeve was when I got there and what happened. He grunts and says, kids didn't tell me any of that, nor Maeve neither. What's the matter now, I say? Is she wandering around again? Yeah, but not quite, he says. I woke up in the night because I heard something outside and she wasn't in bed. I looked out the window and there she is out back by the shed, lying in the grass and hollering. I go out to ask her what the holy hell she's doing, but it's like she didn't recognize me. She just grabbed at her hair and shouted things, nonsense things like bird call, I say. He just looks at me strange. and says, hell no. She talking about fog and stars and what all I don't know about books and old men and fish. You should have heard her. It was like she was trying to say stuff she didn't know how to say. She said she's trying to talk it out of her head. When he says that, it gets me to remembering something. So I say, did she have a green book? My looks at me even stranger and says, Damn right she did, on the grass with her. And she was rolling back and forth across it. When she finally stopped, she up and passed out. And I picked her up and carried her in. I went back out and got the book. You know what it is? Well, I know Mike can't read more than his own name. I say, Just something she got from the bookmobile, I guess. She's at home right now? He nods and says, she was sleeping when I left. I sent Jamie to watch in her close and not let her out of the house. I said, I don't have a lot to do today. At least nothing I can't put off. You want me to take her down mountain to a doctor? Mike says, I'd really appreciate that, Joe. I'm behind on my fields as it is, and I can't spare the day. I say, let me get some breakfast, and then I'll come up your way and get her. Tell the kids I shouldn't be long. He got up and shook my hand and went out and turned his truck around to go back up to his place. I dunked my head in a bucket and put on some clothes, made coffee and got some breakfast, got all the way outside before I remembered that my truck couldn't go anywhere, at least not right away. I'd had the radiator out working on it last night until I lost the daylight and had to leave it torn out. So I got back in there and wrestled with it and cursed and got it back in the truck just before noon. Maybe no better than it was before I got it out, at least no worse. And I finally drove up to their house. When I got there, all three kids were sitting outside the front door and they looked scared to death. As soon as I got out of the truck, I heard things from inside, thumping and stuff breaking and catawall that I couldn't make out. I said, what happened? How long she'd been like this? And Rebecca said, right after breakfast, we were cleaning up and she was washing a knife and cut her finger and all of a sudden she just stuck the knife right through her hand. I tried to get the knife away from her. And Jamie said, I helped. And Rebecca said, and then she started screaming, I want it out, I want it out. And starts breaking stuff. The baby was crying, her nose running down off her chin, and Maeve inside sounded hoarse like she'd been yelling for hours. I got up close to the door, Maeve, I said, this is Joe, what's the matter? And something hit on the other side of the door like she'd thrown something, and she said, I want it out, I want all of them out. I said, all the children are out, Maeve, what do you want out? And she said, there's things in my head and I want them out. That book put things in my head. How do I get them out? I say, what things? But she just screams for an answer and it sounds like she's kicking and punching a wall. All I know is she's gonna hurt herself bad, no matter what's wrong with her head. And I say, Maeve, cut it out. You're scaring your children. Let me help you. I start to tell her that I'll take her down mountain to the doctor, but there's a crash from inside, and I know she can't hear me. I tell the kids to go get in my truck far from the door, and I take a breath, and then I open the front door and rush in, but it's quiet. And I think that crash was the last thing I heard, like a window. And there's the window in the kitchen busted out, and blood on the glass had left because she climbed through. I get to the window, And I can see her run into the tool shed out back. I'm not spry enough to follow her through the window. So I go back out through the front and around the house and to the tool shed. The door on the tool shed is something Mike scrounged from an old house before it fell down. And the way it swings, it's got a lock on the inside. And it's locked. I say, Maeve, open the door. Ain't nothing that can help you in there. But I hear her crashing around with tools and whatnot. And then I hear her scream. And she keeps screaming. And there's something sounds wet, too. Well, the door may be solid, but it's an old tool shed, so I find a gray board come loose on the front beside the door, and I start pulling, and slowly the old nail comes out of the old wood. The nail screeches like a cat, but even over that, I can hear her screaming without a stomp. My old arms ain't used to this, but I keep pulling and pulling, and finally the board pulls all the way out, so that I can reach in and grab the lock and finally get it open. I open the door and Maeve's not screaming anymore. She's got it back to me and she's shaking like nothing I ever saw before. And I say, Maeve, what you doing, Maeve? And she says, what you said, Joe? And turns around, she's smiling. There's a bow saw in her hand and the front part of her forehead's off, clean saw it off. There's blood all down her face and I can see her brain where her head should be. And she says, you said cut it out, Joe. So I am. The new things in my head from the book, I don't want them there. So I'm cutting them all out. All out, Joe. I'm cutting them all out.
1: This has been the Freestyle Gargoyles featuring Nate Shoemate. Thanks again, friends, for joining me for this special interseason edition of the Terrifying Lies podcast. Don't stray too far because I will be back in a couple of weeks to give you more. Remember that Season 3 of Terrifying Lies will debut on Friday, August 8th, at high noon. Until next time, I bid you sweet dreams. Or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here.